Okay, I want to tell you about uh, Toby. Uh, Toby graduated from Theological College about a year or two after I did. Uh, we studied at the same place. He then went on to work as a youth worker in uh, a small church, uh, evangelical church in the Midlands in England. Um, and he got, he got on really well there. Uh, in fact, uh, through contacts with the youth group there, he was invited into the local comprehensive school to take some RE lessons. Uh, and that went very well. Uh, for about two years, he went in there on a term-by-term basis uh, and taught some of the RE lessons uh, on Christianity. And the church were delighted that their man... I had this opportunity to go in and and share the Christian faith uh, with the pupils in there. Over that time, he built up a reputation as someone who was reliable, someone who was competent, someone who was engaging and friendly. And so he built some friends in the staff and had a good reputation among the pupils. That was until one day, one day, when uh, a year eight girl in one of his classes put up a hand and said, Sir, do you think hell is real? And if so, what is it like? Okay, so she's only year eight, so he doesn't want to freak her out or frighten her in any way. So he tries to soften his answer, but he also wants to speak the truth. And so he says, yes, hell is a real place, and it's a bit like naughty people going to jail. Okay, and that's all he said. That's all he said. The topic of the lesson wasn't on hell at all. It was on the resurrection. Uh, and so he was trying to get back as quickly as possible to that topic. Um, and the, the class went on. Uh, he didn't know any more about it until uh, a little later because that girl went home and told her parents that um, the RE teacher in school had taught that, that hell was a real place. Um, and the parents were absolutely outraged by that and contacted the school and demanded a response from the school. Uh, very quickly it escalated. Soon the, the headmistress got involved. Uh, then the, the governor stepped in. And in no time at all, over a matter of a couple of days, a letter lands in Toby's letterbox that says, Thank you so much for all your time and effort, which he gave by f- for free, by the way. Thanks so much for your time and effort, but your services will no longer be required at the school. I told he was a bit offended by that and, and asked at least that they would hear his side of the story and find out exactly what he said and why he said it. Uh, but they weren't particularly interested. Uh, they simply said in correspondence with him that they, it, they were under an obligation that no one be offended, and so they had no option but to, to terminate his services. And they got someone else in to teach the RE who didn't actually teach from the Bible at all. Um, now, Toby uh, was pretty discouraged by that, and actually, if you talk to him, would say he felt pretty dirty by that whole episode. As if he was made to feel as if he'd done something wrong or shameful or immoral in some way. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the school door, the school door was slammed shut for Toby. Now, as uh, someone who's a Christian, if you were to chat to Toby and uh, to encourage him, how would you do it? 
what would you say to encourage him? Well, I think you could do a whole lot worse than go to this little letter, this little postcard from Jesus to uh, those Christians at Philadelphia. In our culture, we've seen over the past 50 years at least uh, that our culture is becoming increasingly hostile uh, to the Christian faith. It used to be that if you declared that you were a Christian uh, and owned some of the Christian views um, and lived out a Christian lifestyle, folks would refer to you as, at least in Northern Ireland, they would anyway, good living. You're good living. Folks might not have wanted to follow your lifestyle. They might not have wanted to be good living. uh, But uh, they would have almost respected you for doing it. But that has all changed. That has all changed over the last 50 years, particularly in the last 10 years or so. And we have seen that those who hold Christian views, the exclusive claims of the Bible, the ethics of the New Testament, the ethics of the Bible, um, we've seen increasingly that Christians who claim and own those views are regarded as weird or delusional at best, intolerant, sinister, and dangerous at worst. Now, please, I don't mean to over-egg the pudding in any way. Look, what we, the, the bit of social pressure that we're beginning to face, the bit of hostility that we see in the media and uh, even maybe among our peer group, is, is nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters, uh, fellow Christians, are facing in, in many parts of the world, where their livelihoods and their uh, job opportunities and education opportunities and very lives are been threatened. No, we're not facing anything like that. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But the little bit of social pressure that we're feeling today gives us a glimpse as to what these Christians were facing Uh, in Philadelphia about 2,000 years ago, because this is a letter to a real church facing real pressures. Um, But even though though this letter uh, doesn't have Strandtown Baptist on the envelope, it's not addressed to us, it's, it's not directly to us, Nevertheless, again, as we prayed, each of these little postcards from Jesus finishes in the same way. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. It's not just one postcard to one church. Uh, This is a letter for all the churches to read and to be encouraged by. Uh, And we've seen that every week that as we looked at these postcards from Jesus, they're surprisingly relevant for each one of us, that the warnings we have are timely for us. But also this week, the encouragements that we find here uh, are for us to, to learn. Uh, in many ways, as we said last week, that little phrase, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, is a bit like saying, if the cap fits, wear it. If, if you find encouragement here, then own it, claim it, it's for you too. Um, I want to look at this letter under two big ideas. First, I want to see uh, Jesus' assessment of this church. What what does Jesus look for in a a church? And this is a healthy church. This is one of the the, the two churches in the seven uh, postcards from Jesus that has no criticism in it whatsoever. He doesn't have a bad word to say about them. Um, 
what encouragement is there for us? What is Jesus looking for in a healthy church? If we're to be a healthy church, and then secondly, uh, not just Jesus' assessment of the church, then Jesus' assurances to the church. He promises them some wonderful things that are true for all of us if we've put our trust uh, in the Lord Jesus. And so that's where we're going to go over the next couple of minutes, few minutes. Uh, first then, uh, Jesus' assessment of the church. What is Jesus looking for? Now, she doesn't mind me saying this, but my wife is a school teacher, and she's just finished marking all the, the school exams, and she's just been writing up reports, school reports. And unknown to her, I had a bit of a sneak peek at one of them. I, I'm pretty confident uh, the culprit is not here, but uh, this result is disappointing but unsurprising given the efforts that Patrick has shown throughout the year. Patrick is in trouble. Patrick's in trouble. Uh, He's got some explaining to do to mum and dad uh, as that report comes home. Okay. Uh, This is Jesus' report on this church. This is his report. And again, as I said, he's got nothing bad to say about them. It is completely positive, but it is actually quite surprising Because what he looks for in a church and what he commends are not the normal things that we look for, not the normal things that we're impressed by. And so I think there's some things for us to learn here. Look first, if you've got your Bible open, look first at verse 8. I know you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. Jesus sees two things in this church. First, he sees that they've got little strength, little strength. The Greek word there is uh, dunamin, which is from which the word from which we get the word dynamite, uh, power. You've got no power. You're not dynamic. You're not a dynamic church. Um, And so this was a church that was not big, This was a church that was not wealthy. This was a church that was not successful uh, in the world's eyes. In many ways, this church was the the poor sister church of both the church up the road and the church down the road. Okay, so last week we looked at the church up the road, uh, the church at Sardis, and we found it a very uncomfortable read because that was a church that was big and lively. It had fantastic worship. There's not a hint of any, any scandal. They're living in a godly way. They are, there's no hint of any false teaching. They're teaching the Bible clearly. Uh, it is a, a, a church that has got a fantastic reputation for being, for being lively. And yet the shock is, despite being active, despite being theologically accurate, despite living in a respectable way, as Jesus looks underneath the veneer, as he lifts the bonnet, as it were, of this church, what he finds underneath is this is a church that's dead, a church that's dead. And as we are a church that's got lots going on, I hopefully there's not no false teaching from the front. Um, nevertheless, it's very, very possible that that could be true for us. And so we had to consider the warning last week. Next week, if you go down the road, there's this other wonderful church uh, in, in the world's eyes, the church at Laodicea, a church that's, it's a mega church. It's got, 
it's got a huge building. Uh, the pastor is wearing a, a Hugo Boss suit and Gucci shoes and is, is teaching from uh, a gold lectern. You know, it's got, it's got everything. They, they, they're the, they've made a success of it. They've made a success. And yet as Jesus looks underneath the veneer, he lifts the bonnet on that church, he sees that they make, they, you make me sick, is what he says in effect. We'll come to that next week. But those are two churches, two big churches, lively churches, successful churches, that many people were getting in their cars and driving past the little church in Philadelphia to go to. And yet Jesus commends this little struggling church, this church that is not dynamic in any way. It wasn't dynamic in terms of numbers. It didn't have very many people. Uh, it wasn't dynamic in social standing, we guess. Uh, perhaps there were many people from a poor background or slaves who were members of the church, uh, and they had no political influence at all. They weren't an influential church. And perhaps because of their social standing, perhaps of their lack of influence, they're a church that's been persecuted, a church that's under pressure. We get the hint of that in verse 9. Um, verse 9. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews but are not, they are liars. There's certainly pressure coming to them from the Jewish community uh, in the church there, or in the city there. Um, So this is a church that is weak, struggling under pressure. Uh, And yet this is a church that Jesus commends and is delighted with. It seems that both uh, in Smyrna, the the second letter of our seven, and also now in Philadelphia, the second last letter uh, of the seven. We, uh, in both of those cities, there seems to have been uh, the Jewish community putting pressure on the Christians. We talked a little bit about that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at at Smyrna. Uh, This phrase is used again, that they are a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. These are very strong words from the Lord Jesus. Uh, what is, what's going on here? Well, in the, in the Roman Empire in the first century, what the Romans tried to do in order to sort of build unity in their multicultural, multi-ethnic empire was trying to say, look, you can worship whatever god you want, but then you also need to worship the emperor as well. Add the emperor on to your worship. And for most people, that was no problem, and they did exactly that. Uh, However, the the Romans knew that the the Jews were a weird bunch, but it was an ancient religion worthy of respect, uh, and so they they, they were exempt from worshipping the emperor. They didn't have to offer any incense to him. They didn't have to say, Caesar is Lord and God. They 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 were free from that. They just had to say a prayer to God for the emperor and pay an extra tax. That's what they had to do. And since Christians, since all the very first Christians were Jews, for a while Christians found shelter under the umbrella of Judaism. They also didn't have to worship Caesar, offer incense, and say that Caesar is Lord and God. But it seems in both Smyrna and now in Philadelphia, the Jews were effectively going to the Roman authorities and saying, you see these Christians, they've got nothing to do with us. 
They are not Jews in any way. Oh, and by the way, you know they're not offering incense to Caesar. And so the Christians in Philadelphia and in Smyrna were viewed both as heretics by the Jews and potentially traitors by the Romans. And so they're coming under increasing pressure, increasing pressure. Doors that once were open to them, particularly the door of the synagogue, has now been slammed shut. They are being ridiculed, excluded, and discriminated against. They have little strength, and yet here's the second thing that Jesus spots, that he notices, that he observes in this church, that he commends, is not only do they have little strength, but they're loyal. They're loyal to him. I know you have little strength, yet, yet, you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. As we've gone through uh, each week and we've looked at one of these letters, you, you may remember that each letter, and even if you look down, you'll see it, each letter begins with a description of who is writing here, a description of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus. And each description that's, that's picked out, which is usually a reference to something that we saw in the vision of chapter 1, is actually very, very appropriate for the particular church that Jesus is writing to. And notice how Jesus is described here. He is described as the one who is holy and true. He is holy and true. He is holy in that he does the right thing, and he is true. He speaks the right thing. And, what, and that's incredibly appropriate because what this church is doing is that they are following in the footsteps of Jesus. They are doing the right thing. They have kept my word, verse 8. The same phrase is actually used in verse 10, where it's translated, kept my command. Same word, you've kept my word. You've been obedient. You've been obedient to me. And you have not denied my name. You have spoken up for me. They have been loyal. loyal loyalty in the Bible is really love and faithfulness in action. Love and faithfulness in action. And that's what they've done. Their love, their loyalty has been shown in their obedience to the Lord Jesus and their willingness to speak up for him. And that's actually quite surprising because that's not normally what we look for in a church. If you were to land in East Belfast and to travel around the churches, if you're honest, what would you be looking for? What would you be looking for? I think you'd be looking for music, that you enjoy singing along with. I think you'll be looking for children's ministry that's fun and well organized. I think you'll be looking for teaching from the front that is understandable and engaging. I think you'll probably look for a, a good attendance and people sort of like me. But notice, I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but what is top priority for Jesus? is that a community of believers is loyal to him, obedient to him, and willing to speak up for him. I think this is a challenge for us. I really do. Um, but you may be here this morning, and you may be thinking, look, if I'm totally honest with myself, 
there has been areas of my life where I've not been obedient. I know what Jesus has asked of me and I, I know I've done the wrong thing. Or there may be opportunities to speak for him that I'm just really obvious that he's just opened the door. It's really obvious and I've wimped out and said nothing. At that point, you need to hear some reassurance, I think. Because the word denied that's used here, they have not denied my name, verse 8, is the same word used of the Apostle Peter when he denied the Lord Jesus three times. Disowned him, in fact. And yet, what was Peter's experience? When he came back to the Lord Jesus, he found forgiveness and welcome and usefulness. Failure is never final, and forgiveness is available for all who come to him. And so if you're here this morning and you're convinced, I have not been obedient, I've not spoken up for him, then hear that invitation as well this morning. Come to him, admit your failure. Believe that everything necessary for your forgiveness was accomplished at the cross. Ask him for his forgiveness and you'll find freedom welcome and future usefulness. Jesus' assessment of the church. What does he look for? Even though they're little, he looks for loyalty. That's what he's looking for in us too. Second, Jesus' assurances to the church. What does he promise us? What does he promise us? Again, as we've seen throughout these these. Um, chapters in the beginning of the book of Genesis, or the book of Genesis, the book of Revelation, uh, we have seen that the purpose of the book is to speak into the lives and situations of ordinary Christians who are struggling uh, and to give them a bigger perspective on what is going on in their lives. And that's exactly what he does in, in every single letter where he gives them the promise Uh, of what is in the future if they remain loyal to him. And it's four things in this little letter. The first thing Jesus promises them if they remain loyal to him, uh, if we remain loyal to him, is in verses 7 and 8. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, and I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, what is going on there? What's he talking about? Um, In chapter 1, Jesus was described in that vision as holding keys. And in chapter 1, they're described as the keys of death and Hades. Because he is the resurrected Savior, he has the power and the authority to... Bring us who trust in him, bring us through death safely to the other side. He can unlock the prison of death for us. Okay, that's what was going on in chapter 1. But what is this key of David all about? What are we meant to understand by that? And again, as we've seen throughout our little series, if you need need to decode some of the symbolism here, where are you to look? We are to look first within the book, and then if you can't see anything there, look back to the Old Testament. Look back to the Old Testament. And that shouldn't be surprising. Jesus was a Jew. Uh, the one who is the messenger of Jesus is Jewish, John. And so it should be totally unsurprising that they would use Jewish language and Jewish ideas from the Jewish scriptures. That that would be the first thing that they would reach for. 
And when we do that, we see that this is actually, these, these, some of these words here are an actual quote from Isaiah chapter 22, one of the, the Jewish prophets. Um, in Isaiah chapter 22, uh, there is a, a promise of judgment for rebellious Jerusalem in general. And then it begins to zoom in on one guy in particular. A guy most of us have not heard of before. A guy called Shebna. Shebna. Hands up if you've heard of Shebna. Be shocked if there's anybody. There's one at the back. Thanks, Ruth Hutchison. Knows your Bible really well. Uh, I hadn't heard of Shebna before. Uh, he was the, the palace administrator. He literally had the key to the castle, the key to the palace, to let you in to see the king. Uh, and he has uh, got too big for his boots. He's become proud and arrogant. And so judgment is promised upon him. And he's going to be replaced by a guy called Eliakim. So here, for, I think the words will appear on the screen. Uh, Isaiah 22. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your robe. And fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him and I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. What's his job? His job will be to hold the keys, control access to the king, King Hezekiah. You want to see the king? You've got to go through Eliakim. Why then does Jesus pick this obscure character that most of us have never heard of, quote these words that most of us have never read, and apply them to himself? Well, because Jesus is speaking to Christians for whom so many doors in Philadelphia have been slammed shut. They are excluded and rejected, a despised and discriminated minority. And Jesus is saying to them, I have opened a door for you, the greatest door of all, and no one's going to shut it in your face ever again. What is that door? Well, the next open door in the book of Revelation, if you flip over to chapter 4, turn over one page, and after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And John is invited to go through the door, and what's on the other side? He gets to stand in the throne room of God himself. The door to the presence of God is opened by Jesus for his people and it will never be shut in their faces again. So it doesn't matter at one level what the Roman authorities think of you. It doesn't matter what the Jewish neighbors think about you. They may shut all kinds of doors, but the most important door in the universe I have opened for you, and it'll never be shut in your face. It's there in verse 8. I know your deeds. I, I see I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. We will be welcomed into the presence of God, such as our privileged access if we know and trust in the Lord Jesus. That's the first promise these struggling believers are given. Second promise that they're given is public vindication. 
verse 9. I will make them, speaking about the Jews, I will speak them, come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus is saying that there's a day coming for the believers in this little struggling church that one day they will be shown to be in the right. All sorts of negative verdicts are being pronounced over them at the moment. You are heretics, you are traitors. They're a marginalized, despised minority. But Jesus is saying, one day you will be shown to be in the right. And it will be obvious to the world that I love you. You'll be vindicated, vindicated before everyone. Now, lots of people read that verse and they think that that's referring to what will happen at the very, very end. Uh, When Jesus returns and all people, as Philippians 2 says, what Paul writes to the church in Philippi, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus uh, Christ is Lord. But on that day, people will do it begrudgingly reluctantly I actually don't think that's what's going on in this verse it could be could be uh, in that way they'd be shown to be in the right in the end Uh, but the little word for acknowledge that's used there is the same word that's often translated in the New Testament worship worship and so it's very possible and I think makes a lot of sense uh, that what Jesus is referring to is You see today those people you rub shoulders with who despise the gospel, who think you're weird and deluded and probably a bit dangerous for believing that. There will be some of them who bow the knee to Jesus in your presence, who are converted, who come to faith, declare that Jesus really is who he claims he is, And that you were right all along. And actually that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because it's often when we are weak and fragile and still loyal to Jesus that actually we can be most effective for him. And I've seen that time and time again with the folks in this congregation. With folks who are ill. When there's a a, a diagnosis that's not good pronounced over someone when a relationship breaks down, when they are given wonderful opportunities to speak about their faith and their hope to those around them, that actually they can be the most effective for the gospel and might see those come to faith. That happens again and again and again. Either way, these believers will be shown to be in the right one day. Keep going. Stay loyal. Stay faithful. Privileged access. Public vindication. A permanent reward. Verse 12. A permanent reward. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. That's a strange image, isn't it? I don't really want to be a a pillar. Quite like walking around. don't want to be stuck in one place. Um... It's a strange, strange image. What's going on here? Again, it's, it's meant to be a really encouraging image because it expresses, I think, two ideas really powerfully. One, the idea of belonging, belonging. Think of a, an ancient temple with all those big, massive Corinthian pillars. 
If you've got one of those big temples, think of it in your mind. You can take out all the furniture you want, and it'll not affect the building in any way. But actually, start taking out a few of those Corinthian pillars, and the whole thing's going to fall down, isn't it? The pillars are crucial to the building. They're crucial to the building. They cannot be lost. They're essential. And what Jesus is saying is that they are going to be, they are essential in God's plan. They are dis- I think how encouraging that is to a despised minority. You are crucial and essential in God's grand design. You belong. You belong. Also, there, it expresses the idea of permanence. Permanence, doesn't it? Uh, now, I suspect at least 50% of the people in front of me watched the wedding uh, of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And I'm not going to speculate which 50% uh, that was. But in St. George's Chapel in Windsor, it's this beautiful structure with these huge pillars holding up this ornate ceiling. And those pillars have been holding up that ceiling in St. George's Chapel in Windsor for five years. 100 years. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility that 500 years from now, they'll still be there. You get the idea? A pillar expresses this idea of permanence. Permanence. And it's there in verse 12 again. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Never again will they leave it. You will have a permanent place in the presence of God, in the new creation. And so no doubt these Christians were feeling like misfits in their society. No doubt they were feeling fearful uh, for the future, discouraged in the present. Uh, This is a wonderful encouragement, a beautiful image. You belong to me. You belong. You're essential in my plan. And you have a permanent place in the new creation forever. Privileged access public vindication, permanent reward, and lastly, a personal name, a personal name. The end of verse 12. I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, uh, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Uh, When I buy a book, one of the first things I do is I scribble my name in, inside the front cover. Uh, it, it expresses the idea, this book now belongs to me, and it's also the vain hope that if I lend it to someone, I'm going to get it back again. This doesn't always happen, but uh, you get the idea. To write your name on something shows that it belongs to you, it's known to you, and it's precious to you. And so the name of God is written on every believer. You are known and precious to God. It's who you are. But also it's the name of the city is written on them. They belong to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. They feel like misfits, no doubt, in Philadelphia. Outcasts, a despised minority. But they belong in the new Jerusalem. And lastly, it's the name of Jesus is written on, on every believer. And notice it's a new name. It's difficult to understand exactly what's going on there. I suspect, I'm not sure, but I suspect 
what has been expressed there is this idea that in the new creation we will have a new intimacy, a new joy when we are with him face to face. That's what's promised for all these believers who are struggling. During World War II, uh, Winston Churchill was invited to give a speech at Prize Day at his old school at Harrow. Uh, and he, he, he was in the, the midst of all the planning for the war. And he had no time whatsoever. So his speech consisted of seven words. Seven words. He got up in front of all those boys and he said, Never, 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 never give up. What this letter says to you and me as a Christian this morning, it might be hard. You might be feeling weak. You might be feeling unimpressive, not dynamic, not very fruitful, struggling to hold on. Jesus says, never, 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 never Never give up because it's worth it. Let me pray.